You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1879th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 19th of May. The editor of this edition is Katrina, the producer is Roger, and your readers are Sue and Neil. Hello. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch the memory stick to you. We'll repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And, as usual, we start with headlines. Nearly 370 Ukrainian refugees arrive in Suffolk, but some are still left in limbo. Town centre going strong as four new firms set to open. Festival Torch Relay begins 550-mile trek around the county. An explosive discovery. Nearly 370 people have arrived in Suffolk under the Homes for Ukraine scheme, new data has revealed. Towns and villages around the county rallied around people as they arrived and communities are offering families clothes and toys. But delays in visa processing are still leaving some Ukrainian families in a state of limbo. As of May the 10th, 772 visas have been issued under the scheme for Suffolk with 235 of these in East Suffolk. Bobby Bennett, Suffolk County Council Cabinet Member for Equality and Communities, said, Suffolk has a proud history of welcoming refugees and we are united in our support for the people of Ukraine. We are continuing to work closely with the district and borough councils across Suffolk, Community Action Suffolk, Anglia Care Trust and other voluntary and community groups to carry out checks and help Ukrainian refugees settle safely and smoothly here in Suffolk. We are regularly in touch with sponsors to provide the latest information and guidance as the situation develops and continue to support refugee guests to access vital services such as healthcare and education, to enable them to adjust to living independently here in Suffolk. Children are settling into schools and quickly making new friends. Councillor Bennett said Suffolk Refugee Support and other groups were helping refugees learn English and offering support settling into their local communities. Kim Balshaw, who has coordinated finding homes in the UK for nearly 100 Ukrainians, said the scheme had improved as time goes on, but there are still a whole load of loose ends. Mr Borshaw, a retired RAF wing commander who specialised in crisis planning, said, I sense that they speeded up the process, but I think there are still some people being left behind. People who are already having problems don't appear to be having them resolved. Mr Borshaw, who lives in Felixstowe, said the application for one family of five was proving a complete nightmare. He said, The visa applications were put in on April the 4th and they are still waiting. All of them had passports, apart from the eight-month-old. The dad is a diabetic and ended up in hospital, losing two toes in the process, and they were talking about amputating his lower leg. The latest figures show Bury St Edmunds' vacancy rate is 6.9%, below the national average of 11.7%. Chief Executive of the Bury St Edmunds Business Improvement District, Mark Cordell, said the fact that the level of vacant units is well below that of the UK is reassuring and demonstrates that Bury continues to be seen as a desirable location for new businesses and long may this continue. Brook Taverner will be opening on the corner of Abbeygate Street and will be offering quality men's suits and tailoring. The Suffolk store will fill the site of former department store Palmer's, which has been empty since closing in 2018. Taking over a long-term empty unit will be the Wine Cellar, a wine bar situated in the town's butter market. The unit was previously occupied by jewellery and watch store Goldsmiths, which was forced to close due to rent costs. Pub restaurant Damson and Wild is set to open on Monday the 30th of May in the previous site of Café Rouge on Abbeygate Street. 
Greek restaurant The Olive Grove is the final of the four businesses opening and will be situated on St John Street. Filling the former site of clothing outlet Jaeger, the Suffolk store will become the second in the Olive Grove's chain, with the first restaurant being in Cambridge. Mr Cordell said, Over the past 18 months, Berry has seen a number of new businesses open in the town centre and fill some long-term empty units. I'm delighted to see that the ex-Palmers, Goldsmiths, Jaeger and Café Rouge units will all soon have new tenants with businesses new to the town. New businesses widen the choice for consumers and attract more people into the town. The reputation for the town being the foodie capital of Suffolk will, I am sure, be enhanced with three of these newcomers being within the hospitality sector. Crowds waving flags turned out in force for the launch of the 550-mile torch relay around Suffolk to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. The market town of Brandon was decked out in bunting for the start of the relay for the Festival of Suffolk and the torch was set on its way by two local heroes, Councillor Sam Skinner, leader of the Brandon Town Council, and a year 10 pupil at Breckland School. A 500-strong attendance packed out Market Hill as the torch began its three-week journey when it will wind its way through 250 towns and villages before reaching its destination at the Suffolk Show at Trinity Park on Wednesday, June the 1st. On arrival at the final stop, the torch will be greeted by the Lord Lieutenant of Suffolk, Clare, Countess of Suffolk, and a pageant of 450 young people, NHS and emergency service workers, along with the military. Tim Holder, Head of Public Affairs at Suffolk Community Foundation, who is on the Festival of Suffolk team, said, It was absolutely amazing. There were at least 500 people gathered in Market Hill in Brandon to see the torch off. The place was covered in bunting, was everything you could possibly have hoped to kick off the Platinum Jubilee celebrations for the Queen. All the children and parents waving flags. The torchbearers rode in a rickshaw that travelled along the high street before taking the 1065 towards Lakenheath and then turning right at Wongford Road. Rickshaws, provided by services in Bury St Edmunds, Framlingham and Stowmarket, will cover the torch relay route and will comprise a small team including a rickshaw driver, supported by relay organiser Mark Brennan. The charities providing the rickshaws use them to offer free rides in the community to people with mobility difficulties or experiencing social isolation. Welcome parties are being organised in towns and villages along the route, while the county's bell ringers are planning to ring a peal as the torch passes churches along the way. The progress of the torch will be visible on both the Festival of Suffolk website and social media through a live link from the Best of Suffolk Torch Tracker. A Bury St Edmunds construction site boss has spoken of the once-in-a-lifetime moment that he discovered about 12 unexploded devices from a possible home guard cache. Lee Bullock, Bullock, whose team has been carrying out concrete works at AMB Foods in Dettingen Way, alerted the police after they dug up suspicious metal items on Wednesday morning. Little did he realise they had unearthed a possible home guard cache containing about a dozen devices, including three-and-a-half-inch practice rockets, practice energy rifle grenades and two-inch mortar bombs. An army bomb disposal team was called and examined the items, which were considered safe to be removed and taken away. Mr Bullock, who grew up in Bury and now lives in Sudbury, said one would have been one would have been bad enough, let alone a dozen. The forty two year old is the works manager for JK Construction and has been at AMB Foods for eight weeks. They came across a piece of metal on Tuesday, just after four PM. He said As builders, you excavate and find bits of metal, saucepans, etc. So when you see a bit of metal you don't think anything of it. You don't think, that's a bomb. On Wednesday morning, we started where we left off and found a bit more metal. Again, we didn't think really think anything of it until we could see the shape of a fin or the tail and then it suddenly dawned on me what we were excavating. He immediately phoned the police and set up a 20-metre cordon. A couple of police officers came out pretty quickly, he said. They had a look and laughed at my little cordon that I had put in and said, it needs to be a bit bigger. 
I was worried. As a works manager, there are a few people under my guidance. My first concern was them. A 100-metre cordon was put in place for part of the industrial estate in Detting and Way, and some buildings were evacuated. No detonations were needed. An army spokesman said, Upon inspection, the item was found to be a possible home guard cache containing three-and-a-half-inch practice rockets, rifle grenades and mortar bombs. The items were inspected and safely removed from the site for disposal. We always advise the public that if they inadvertently disturb what they believe to be live ordnance, they should contact their local police force as a matter of urgency. Mr Bullock said that once the bomb disposal team left, they were able to get back to work and were due to finish at the site yesterday. Fortunately, we didn't find anything else, he said. It's hopefully a once-in-a-lifetime morning. Life for closed pub. A closed Thurston pub could reopen and become a thriving community hub if extension plans are approved by Mid-Suffolk District Council. Green King has applied for a garden room extension and alterations including a coffee shop and bakery at the Victoria Inn in Norton Road. The pub, which was once surrounded by fields but is now enveloped by modern housing developments in various stages of completion, is in need of a revamp an investment and investment according to documents submitted. The proposal would see the pub return to being a high-quality pub and dining venue with a supporting coffee shop and bakery to provide a strong all-day offer to allow the pub to survive in an increasingly difficult marketplace. A design and access statement by architecture and design firm Quarter and Forge said the pub has been sitting vacant for some time and with the proposed development there is a plan to turn the pub into a thriving pub for the community. The garden would be redeveloped, forming an external part-covered terrace area for dining and drinking. This will be supported by an external kitchen and bar to allow the pub to grow its trade seamlessly in the summer months. If the scheme is approved, a new timber-framed garden room would be built where the existing conservatory stands. Most of us would be chuffed with walking or running the same two-and-a-half-mile route every day for the last five years. But for one former Berrytown Football Club groundsman, it is a stroll in the park. Charlie Knight, who's 79, of Parkway Berry, used to mark the pitch at the town's football club and one day started running around the pitch. He has run or walked every day since, but has branched out from going round the football club's pitch and follows the same two-and-a-half-mile route each time around Berry. And so, to mark his 30th birthday on June the 11th, Charlie decided it would be fitting to journey along the same route he takes every day. He will be taking off from Berry Fire Station at 9am with the former Berrytown Football Club captain Ollie Hughes and his brother Sam. Charlie, who brands himself a sportsman, having played snooker and tennis earlier in life, said it would be marvellous if as many people as possible made the trip down to support him. As I got near to 80, I thought, I've got to do it on my 80th birthday, but it would be nice to celebrate it with a crowd. Charlie said after stopping to mark the pitches at Berry Town Football Club, he just had to have something else to replace it, and besides gardening, running every day was one thing to do. His wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's eight years ago, and he is her main carer. Alongside keeping him busy, Charlie said running every day was a release valve from the pressures of the day-to-day caring for his wife. Some days it's harder than others and some days it's easier, he said. You get your little twinges on your knees but you ignore those. He added, if I stopped at my age I would go downhill. I can't sit there and watch the telly all day. Charlie's family will also be there on June the 11th to cheer him on. He said he was sure that they were proud of him for organising the event. Charlie's route will take him down Parkway from the station, along Spring Lane and through Tafen Meadow, up, left up Beaton's Way, past West Suffolk Council's offices, left by Newmarket Road and past West Suffolk College, then back left down Parkway to the fire station. Good for him. <laughs> Steve showing his skill on popular restoration TV show. And he says, when I was told I was on the show, they asked me not to shave my beard off as Americans loved it. So we have gone with that. 
and he's an Elmswell furniture restorer who thought his business may have to close its doors permanently during the pandemic, and he has revealed that he's now part of a popular TV series. Steve Norman of Steve Norman Furniture Restorers on Station Road Industrials Estate is now part of the team for Salvage Hunters, the Restorers. The opportunity for the business, which started in 1996, came from an out-of-the-blue call to Steve's workshop. He said, It came a couple of years ago in the middle of Covid, asking if I was interested in being put forward to Discovery UK. We had hit 25 years as a business and at that time I was panicking that restoration was the bottom of everyone's to-do list. I thought my business may go bust. In fact, the opposite has happened, with a 48-year-old saying they were now around 20 to 30% busier than before, with shows like Salvage Hunters encouraging people to restore old items. He said the phone has not stopped. Instead of Granny's chair in the garage going to landfill, people have been coming to us to restore it. After being whittled down to the last few applicants, the show's production crew came and did a promo video of Steve working in his workshop before they picked him in May last year. Steve said it was nerve-wracking at first as I had never done anything like this before, but I love it now. It took a couple of projects to settle into it with camera nerves, but it is really good fun and the camera and production crews are such lovely people who look after you. Steve and his team, furniture restorer Carly Taylor, freelance upholsterer Lee Goddard, Japanese lacquer artist and Steve's wife Shelley, and Willow the workshop dog, took on an 18th century oak chest for the show's first project. The restoration included making bracket feet from period timber, reconstructing drawers and reproducing rope carvings on the top mouldings. Steve said, I think I've been referred to on the show as a furniture nerd, and I suppose I am a bit. It's my hobby, my passion and my job. The challenge for me is if someone comes in with a carrier bag full of bits and says in there is the most beautiful ornate Queen Anne mirror, there is a joy and a buzz in turning it into something that looks like it has never been restored. Now, you need to know this is written by somebody called Camille Berryman. Where do you know if... Where do you turn if bins block a pavement? There is no dropped curb or A-boards clutter the street scene. These are probably questions you have never answered if you are able to walk around Bury St Edmund Town Centre, but could cause serious challenges if you have a mobility issue. Peter Fuller, 70, of Vinery Road, spoke out in last week's Bury Free Press after a temporary ramp near the old post office collapsed as he went over it in his mobility scooter. On Tuesday, Peter took me for a walk around the town so that I could see firsthand some of the issues he and others using mobility scooters or wheelchairs face. I meet Peter and his wife Christine outside Boots on Cornhill, where they point out a dropped curb blocked by a legitimately parked car, while the dropped curb on the opposite side of the road is blocked by cars illegally parked in a bay. There is another drop curb by the old post office, but it has been partially stopped off since the work started there, said Peter. With no way of getting across the road, Peter has to undertake a three-point turn on his scooter and go down to Iceland to cross the road. The town is in two halves, he says. The new part, the Ark, was designed to take into account those with mobility issues, and as a result we have hardly any problems there. It's a different story in the old town centre for Peter, who has primary progressive multiple sclerosis and has used his scooter for four years. We pass the corn exchange, where a hole in the road by the dropped curb has been there for months. Heading into the traverse, scaffolding outside a shop, and a bollard in the centre of the pavement forced Peter's scooter into the road a road meant only for taxis and delivery vehicles, but frequently used by prohibited motorists as a cut-through. As we move back towards Corn Hill, Peter points out restaurants and shops he cannot visit due to access. When we arrive at the top of St John Street, one of the worst areas in town, according to Peter, I can see why he might have a problem. The area is littered with A-boards, a large floral planter, an electricity cabinet and cycle racks. 
Peter says, in years gone by, the A-boards were taken away by the authorities, but it doesn't happen anymore. I describe this as one of my grot spots. Peter then takes me to Churchgate Street, along the way pointing out the shabby street scene, uneven paving, blocked, dropped curbs outside Moises Hall Museum and Marks and Spencer, and a proliferation of A-boards and cafe tables on pavements to show me a particular problem area in the junction with Athenaeum Lane. There are no drop curbs for the junction, so when Peter and Christine visit the cathedral refectory, he is forced to leave the pavement at a drop curb onto Churchgate Street and then drive his scooter in the road directly into, inco- into incoming on one-way traffic until the next drop curb near Angel Lane. I used to come into town every Saturday and now look for excuses not to, said Peter. Adding the West Suffolk Council's 2017 Town Centre Master Plan talked about repairing and maintaining pavements with appropriate materials and optimising access by addressing drop curbs, street clutter, surfacing and access. A Suffolk Highway spokesman said they would review the concerns about the condition of the highway and bollards and encourage residents to report concerns directly via its online reporting tool. If any defects are found which meet the criteria set out in our highway maintenance operational plan, these works will be ordered, they added. Will be ordered, they added. And continuing Camille Berriman's uh, mission, she asks, can you help to make our roads safer? A call has been issued for volunteers to help make roads in Bury St Edmunds safer. Morton Hall Estate resident Andy Ellis is recruiting for a community speed watch scheme to educate drivers on the dangers of speeding and raise road safety awareness. Earlier efforts to launch a scheme in February 2020 were scuppered by the pandemic, but the former driving instructor now hopes to get the initiative up and running on Morton Hall as soon as possible, while he hopes it could eventually spread across the town. Community Speedwatch is about trying to educate people to try to make them more aware of the fatal fall, inappropriate speed, mobile phone use, not wearing a seatbelt and drink drug driving, said Andy. Community Speedwatch allows volunteers, at least six are needed, to monitor speeds with detection equipment and record registration numbers of vehicles breaking the speed limit. The details are forwarded to the Safety Camera Partnership and a warning letter sent to the registered owner of the vehicle. If the vehicle is seen and recorded again, a second and final letter is sent with persistent offenders potentially targeted further. Andy said he had liaised with the Speedwatch team at Suffolk Police and hoped to form a group in the near future. I'm very pleased to say we have their full support as well as a provision of full training and equipment at no cost to ourselves to set up a scheme, which is really great news. All we need now are at least six willing and able volunteers as well as a list of specific roads we feel need particular attention, said Andy. He said he was already aware of several problem areas around Morton Hall, including Beddingfield Way, Simmons Road, Mount Road, Airfield Road and Lady Miriam Way. The sooner we can create our group, the sooner we can really make our mark on trying to encourage the safe use of our roads for all, he added. A couple whose home of 65 years was destroyed in a thatched building fire in Hengrave have thanked the wonderful emergency services personnel who attended the blaze. Cliff and Wendy Hall, aged 90 and 86 respectively, are now staying in Thurston after the fire on the evening of April 25th ripped through the property which contained four homes. Mr Hall said, we're coping, but that they still haven't really come to terms with what has happened. Most of their home was gone, said Mr Hall but some treasured belongings had been saved, including his model trains and several of his wartime photograph albums of Ruffham Airfield. Unfortunately, three albums of family photos, including baby photos of their two daughters, who were born at the Hengrave house, and Mr Hall's old RAF photos from his time in the Air Force, have been lost. He said these precious items did mean quite a bit to me, really. 
Mr. and Mrs. Hall said, We would like to thank the wonderful men and women of the fire service, police and paramedics who attended the thatch fire in Hengrave on the evening of Monday the 25th of April. We have lived in one of the four cottages affected by the fire for 65 years and while the fire has been a dreadful shock, the fast work and understanding of everyone on that evening helped to keep us safe and rescue a few treasured possessions before the fire took hold of the whole block. Our neighbours in Hengrave have also been a great support and looked after us through the night while the fire service fought the fire and all the roads into the village were closed, preventing family from joining us or anyone leaving the site. The couple who have home insurance had both been outside at the time. Mr Hall described seeing smoke coming out of a roof and in the next five minutes the smoke turned to flames. And within about a quarter of an hour it had gone through all four properties. That really went, he said. In a stroke of luck following a Facebook appeal by their daughter, Sue Barnes, Mr Hall now has a new copy of the first edition of a book he authored called A Pictorial History of the Men and Aircraft of the 94th Bombardment Group, 1942-45. to His original was badly water-damaged because of the fire, but Keeley Crane presented Mr Hall with a replacement, which he said he was very grateful for. He's also hoping some water-damaged photograph negatives that were recovered may still be usable. More than 20 fire service appliances were involved in battling the blaze at the property on the A1101 to Berry Road. The residents of all four homes were accounted for and an investigation into the cause of the fire found it began when a spark from a chimney ejected onto the dry reed-thatched roof. Garden Centre celebrates 40 years. So Thetford Garden Centre is celebrating 40 years of helping green-fingered horticulturists get what they need for their own open spaces. Started in Lime Kiln Lane in the town in 1982 by Jean and Paul Nixon, the now Kilverston-based centre has continued to grow, overcoming advertises such as recessions, flooding in 2020 and the pandemic. Lucy Nixon, managing director and daughter of the founders, said, My dad was made redundant from an engineering firm. My mum was a keen gardener. She grew up in the countryside and they just decided to start a garden centre. Though they had no previous experience in retail, mum knew a lot about plants and with my dad's engineering background, he started a machinery department, like we still have today, selling lawnmowers and doing repairs to them. And it just grew from there. After spending a decade at the original location, the business moved to a purpose-built site in Kilverston in 1992. Lucy said she had always been a part of the family-run business, still headed by her mum, and had memories of playing her part growing up. I remember I was about 12 years old, walking around Thetford's High Street wearing a sandwich board for the business, she said. Also, coming down Christmas times to feed the budges, the hamsters or whatever other animals we had back then. Since the move, the centre has not stopped evolving, having built its lime kiln kitchen, Ristra, which had a refurbishment in 27, and during Covid, adding pizza and waffle trailers to their outside area last year. Lucy said, our restaurant chef asked me last week what we used to serve back in the early days. It was a vending machine that would put 20 pence in for tea or soup whereas now our food offerings are integral parts of the business and have and will continue to be central to our future success. To celebrate the centre's milestone, events to thank customers and staff are planned and a female wicker sculpture was commissioned for its car park, pairing with one already there of a man digging, which was installed to mark its 30th anniversary. Asked what she would like to say to the centre's supporters, Lucy said, Just a big thank you. I know we are rarely well supported in the community by our staff and customers and hope they continue to do so as we feel so proud to be part of Thetford as we love our town. Now we're going to read some letters and my first one is from the editor of the Berry Free Press, Barry Peters. He says, Bad news sells. You never look for the positives. I could fill a book with the number of times I've heard that over the years. Ultimately, reporters record facts 
and write what their readers want to read. The fact that a fire has closed off a road somewhere or that a person has been jailed for some discretion could be seen as bad news, but it's news that is always well read. So this week's good news at Berry County Upper School is something to celebrate, some positive news to shine a light on. County Upper is a large school and has the expectations of scores of families within its grasp. So news of a good rating from inspectors at Ofsted is something to be rightly proud of and celebrated. County Upper had been rated outstanding before an inspection in 2019 threw up some issues. New head teacher Sally Kennedy and the governors have started to turn things around and that is indeed good news for Berry, and, more importantly, for scores of young people. Well done all. Mm, excellent. Now I have two letters about the same topic, which we have uh, touched on before. Now the first one is from Jenny Goff, Berry St Edmunds, <coughs> excuse me, who writes, Please improve dropped curbs. I agree with Peter Fuller, she writes, Berry Free Press, Friday, May the 6th. I ride, a mobility, I ride a mobility scooter and find driving around the streets of Bury St Edmunds appalling. Does the council ever walk around to see that the dropped curbs are not at some junctions? Up until a few weeks ago, there was not one outside the building of the old post office. You had to go further down the road to find one. Then there were cars parked on it. I did complain to the council and was told there is one, but there is not. If I wanted the post office, I had to park in the road and walk. I have also got stuck in the hole at the one outside the corn exchange featured in the paper. So now I use the road with care. It is very dangerous. Please, Berry, Council, do something about the dropped curbs. And then Monica Ames, also from Berry, writes on the same subject. She says, yes, please sort out our pavements. I have had to use a mobility scooter for more than four years and during that time the pavements have got worse. But not only are the pavements bad, they are often blocked by cars and lorries, dustbins and placards, so we cannot pass. Plus our other problem is cyclists who think they own the paths, but are banned, are they not? Does anyone do anything about this? I have just seen at least six riding on the pavements in the last ten minutes. If the Highways Department would like to have a bone-shaking ride on my scooter, they are very welcome. I have to walk every day for medical reasons, but I have to use my scooter to get to the Abbey Gardens every day, as I dare not walk on the pavements. I have seen too many accidents. And on a similar uh, theme, Tom Murray's letter says, Town is starting to look tatty. Bury St Edmunds is coming back to its grand, welcoming self. However, some buildings look very tatty, with broken frontages, rotting timbers and filthy pavements taking away from our well-looked-after businesses. Our town is suffering from many damaged pavements, with fading lines, disabled bays not marked, yellow and white lines poorly marked. Surely the Highways Department has a rolling programme of refreshing them. It's much needed in our town centre. Angel Hill desperately needs the York stone pavements professionally repointed, not the sloppy work we've got now. Cobbled areas are very bad. Wheelchairs get stuck, pushchairs, children's scooters. It's a massive trip hazard. Trips and falls are becoming more frequent. They are painful and costly to the NHS. And now a slightly different subject. Keith Apps from Bury St Edmunds writes, Why is rail travel so expensive? Last Saturday, my wife went to a dance day in Northampton. We decided to go by car, 80 miles and a, an hour and a quarter, a nice easy ride up the A14. When we got home, once again, a nice easy raid, ride down the A14, I decided to look and see if we could have used the train and stayed off the road. What an absolute nightmare. To go by train would have cost us £150 each, plus the cost of the taxi to the venue, and would have taken four and a half hours with four changes. With our rail fares the dearest in Europe, no wonder our roads are very busy. Perhaps our MP would like to ask questions about why they are so much dearer than anywhere else in Europe. Right, now I have a selection from... Uh 
fairly new feature which they call Chatterbox, which is uh, uh, comments made by people online. The online story revealing that several chief executives in Suffolk and Cambridgeshire councils earned more than Prime Minister Boris Johnson last year, with one raking in over £200,000, had people hitting the send button with their views. Carl Goldsmith was not impressed to find this out, he said. Earning more than the Prime Minister, it should be the other way round, not council bosses. So is this where the money goes when they sell land or get money off the developers? Also, all the car parks and other things where all the rent money goes, this is sickening. Jonathan Guest agreed. He added, the council bosses aren't worth that much money. They want to live in the real world, have a wage of 140000 a year like most people. It's all greed. And G Jeff Beecroft said, Compare their wage to that of a police officer, ambulance crew or fire service and tell me that they can justify paying themselves that much. Bill Smith simply put, Ridiculous. And another one now. News that a town centre road would be closed for a month to allow drainage repairs also had people up in arms. Risbygate Street in Bury St Edmunds was closed on Monday with a diversion in place along St Andrews Street North, the A1302 Tafen Road and Parkway. Richard Wilson said, This town has become a nightmare to live in. Every road we seem to drive down has roadworks. Can't they work in one area at a time? The council must have given them carte blanche to work on any road they wish at any time. Steve Newman hoped that other works could be done on that stretch of road at the same time. He said, Perhaps, whilst it's closed, our wonderful council can do our bidding and remove the unsightly and inappropriate cycling lane bollards. Mike Mark Holton seemed a little confused by the conclusure and offered up a different, uh, a different idea to help ease possible traffic issues. He said, there's no reason why they couldn't have closed just one lane and used traffic lights. And finally, David Bolton said, Barry, St Edmunds councillors and MP, please take note, this ridiculous amount of roadworks in Barry St Edmunds for the last few years is all being paid for by us while contractors make millions. And now we have the feature, Town's Own West End. So local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor has trawled through his archive to find some of his favourite Bury St Edmunds pictures and stories from the past. From shops, including an off-licence on the corner of Cullum Road, going down out Westgate, the Baptist Church of 1840 on the left is now offices, while the former George Inn on the left closed several years ago. Les Freeman, the last rag-and-bone man of Bury, was sadly found dead in a building at the rear of here. Opposite was the West End Bakery of Nigel Finch, his loaves very popular. Since its closure in 2004, many businesses have come and gone from here. Adjacent is currently R.G. Carter's Builder's Yard, the sculptured stone carvings above the yard's entrance porch, a vestige of when it was the premises of Lot Jackerman, who built the Corn Exchange in 1861. Previous to Lot's business, a stone plaque, St Peter's Vineyard, is a clue to what was grown here, grapevines. The viticulturist responsible was builder John Darkin. Coming back up to the junction with Hospital Road, the owners of the West End Chippy at 189 Westgate Road, now out Westgate, included Harold Cracknell, who had other outlets in Long Brackland and St Andrew Street South, and John and Ellen Emblem, who kept it from 1947 to 1987. A diminutive lady served you here, Mrs Leonfort. Adjacent to the fish and chip shop is Hospital Road, which now has no vehicular access from the roundabout, which once had a very confusing double version. In Hospital Road on the left, St Peter's Terrace has replaced the 15 Westgate Place cottages. And we cannot leave the West End without mention of the trunk, a.k.a. the Elephant and Castle opposite, alas now a funeral parlour. Its almost matriarchal landlady, Ellen Bruton, was Green King's longest-serving landlady, a notable feat considering the cast of characters who imbibed there during her tenure. 
And I have um, an opinion piece written by Suffolk's Police and Crime Commissioner Tim Passmore, and which he calls a chance to showcase Suffolk. Some months ago, the idea of a festival for Suffolk was born during the depths of the pandemic, an absolute masterstroke in my opinion, since it presents an excellent opportunity for the whole county to come together and celebrate. The Festival of Suffolk, which runs throughout the summer, will showcase the very best of what Suffolk has to offer. There will be events right across the county with something for everyone. No doubt at the time the festival idea was conceived, nothing caused anyone to think the world would be plunged into a cost-of-living crisis and the dark shadow of major conflict in Ukraine would hang over us. These terrible events are affecting us all, and many are worried about the long-term consequences, another reason why the Festival of Suffolk is so timely. I know many of us found the lockdowns difficult, and in some cases distressing. For the constabulary, there were some notable changes in the patterns of crime. The decline in burglaries and robberies was very welcome. However, there were serious concerns about the marked rise in domestic abuse and online criminality. I have no doubt Suffolk will come through these difficulties as a much stronger community. In fact, the pandemic did release an enormous outpouring of kindness and concern. It's easy to forget how many people, during lockdown, collected medicines for the sick, went shopping for disabled people, or those who needed to self-isolate, and much more. The power of collaboration and help shone through like a very bright star during the gloom of COVID-19. Suffolk has a great deal to be proud of, and I often think we, collectively, don't blow our own trumpet enough and the festival will certainly help put the county on the map and inspire us all to go on to greater things. Our reputation of having some of the finest historic Tudor buildings in the country is second to none. The world-class food and drink brands based on the historic agricultural trinity are just a few examples of countrywide excellence meriting greater recognition worldwide. From a policing perspective, there is also a great deal to be proud of. Our force is undoubtedly one of the best performing constabularies in the country, which is clearly demonstrated by the relatively low levels of recorded crime and the limited resources available in comparison to our metropolitan counterparts. Since I was elected as Police and Crime Commissioner nearly ten years ago, I have seen at first hand how the constabulary consistently rises to whatever challenge it faces, without complaint. For me, that is a typical Suffolk approach, and that's one of the reasons I know our Festival of Suffolk will be such a success. I am committed to do whatever we can to support our younger generations and our commissioning stroke grant work has helped many youngsters, especially those who are at risk or in difficulty. I can recall the launch of our Youth Intervention Fund in conjunction with the Suffolk Community Foundation three years ago when a dedicated fund was established, pump-primed by a crime disorder and reduction grant and generously matched by private donations to a sum of £250,000. This has made a real difference to hundreds of youngsters and helped them make the right choices in life as they enter adulthood. The Festival, Suffolk, all, Festival of Suffolk also aims to establish a new £5 million fund to help those people, young and old, who need it most. And once again, I believe the county will accept this challenge head on. This typifies the sense of community and compassion found from Brandon to Beckles and from Felixstowe to Haverhill. This fund will not only help people keep safe, but I'm sure will make a major contribution to keeping crime levels down. This is great news for us individually and for our police force. Overall, this coming together as a county will be an excellent legacy for Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee. A huge thank you to all involved in organising this wonderful festival. Let's make it an event we will never forget. Indeed. And now, after Covid, communities are more important than ever. 
This year's Citizen of the Year category of the Berry Free Press Community Awards is being sponsored by a building business celebrating a huge milestone. The awards, in association with Berry St Edmunds Town Council, welcomes Bennett Homes. Once well known in East Anglia as a builder of bungalows, the company has evolved through the years to become a builder of new homes across all areas of the market, first-time buyers, growing families and active retirees. In 1947, RAF pilot Josh Bennett took his DMOP money and used it to help set up the house-building firm in Lakenheath, Suffolk. After providing homes for thousands of people across Suffolk and Norfolk, the business was sold in 1972 to Nigel Parker, a civil engineer from Tottenham. Nigel had been evacuated during the war to East Anglia and had always wanted to return to live and work in the region. Now his son Edward is the managing director and has been in the role for a decade with the firm is now based in Newton. He said after being he said about being involved in the community awards as a local business we value being part of our community and want to play a part in recognizing the special achievements of groups and individuals who go the extra mile to help others. More than at any time in our 75-year history, we have been aware of the importance of supporting each other as we have all faced the challenges of COVID-19 in so many different ways. Bennett Holmes has previously sponsored another of the awards, Community Group of the Year, and Edward said communities and what they represented were also special to the long-established business. He said, I believe that communities are more important than ever, as demonstrated during the pandemic when people reached out to their neighbours to help where assistance was needed. As a house builder, we are proud of the communities we create with our developments, which include public open green spaces and children's play areas where residents can meet and make friends. Last year's winner of the Citizens of the Year category was Jessica Rudd. She won the accolade for her efforts in improving the lives of children and families across the Southgate Ward in Bury during lockdown, as well as for her work in changing rules on charges on registering the death of a child. Asked what he would say to people who are seeing great work being done in their area and are on the cusp of voting for their Citizen of the Year, as well as the other categories, Edward said, If there is someone you feel has made an outstanding contribution to their community, now is the time to ensure they receive the recognition they deserve. We are looking forward to celebrating the amazing entrants and winners of these awards this autumn and hope that their stories will provide an inspiration to others to contribute in the future. When five former West Suffolk Hospital nurses who began their careers together more than 50 years ago reunited for an afternoon tea, they were transported back to some of the most formative times of their working lives. Lynn Neal, Sally Rayson, Elizabeth Hartley, Paula Rivers and Valerie Cook, all aged 70, started as trainee state registered nurses in 1970 at the Bury St Edmunds Hospital. They became friends, shared a house, and after their three-year course with their carers, taking some of them elsewhere, they kept in touch. On Saturday, a reunion at the Angel Hotel in Bury saw them catch up for an afternoon of reminiscing as they stepped back to the morning of January the 5th, 1970, when four of them, minus Sally, who joined a few months later, posed for a photograph gathered outside Marjorie Blyde Nurse's home with the winter air crisp with promise. Lynn of Sutton near Ely said, We were just going to walk off to the nursing school. We quickly became friends, had a great time and worked hard. At the time, the hospital was based in Hospital Road and the five of them lived in one of the houses the hospital rented from the council in Kay Walk. Lynn said, One of the things we were laughing about on Saturday, there was a ward we all worked on at some point. We started at 8am and our first job was to pull the beds out with the patients in them, damp dust all the beds around the back and push them back again. It was far more hands-on, all this machinery and equipment now. When you look back, it was far more basic. It was a time of long hours and plenty of night shifts. During weekends at the old site, before the hospital moved to Hardwick Lane, transport was arranged to pick them up at 7.25 and a taxi was booked when they finished at 9.30.
Before the age of 24-hour shops, they had to be organised for their food, but there were moments they were caught short. The lady that cleaned the house lived at the back of us. I remember knocking on her door, and she kindly gave us a tin of mint, said Lynn. It was the time of the coal miners' strike, and you only had certain times for electricity. I can recall the little coal fire we had there being the only light. After a lifetime of nursing, Elizabeth still volunteers at the hospital and said the reunion was absolutely brilliant. One of the girls did say it was like stepping back, talking about the old times, she said. Trek and Treat Editor Barry Peters walked with Al Packers and hears what he thought of the experience. I've balanced myself precariously on a Segway in the depths of Thetford Forest, trying hard not to fall off and look a right wally. I've been thrown around the hairpins at Snetterton's motor racing circuit at what seemed like warp speed. I've abseiled off the top of a fire station tower with a local air training corps. Just step off backwards. Nice. Heck, I've eaten... I've eaten... I have even eaten pig's cheeks. So, walking around the fields of rural Suffolk holding on to a hairy alpaca should be the most sedate of all these, right? Right and wrong. Joe and Scott Bridge had a vision ten years ago and started Hilly Ridge Alpacas, a farm which offers animal lovers like me the chance to trek with the docile beasts for 90 minutes and promises you will leave the experience beaming. I can vouch for that. From the moment I pulled up with Alpaca Henry and my partner took hold of Sam, we were in another world, transported to calmer, more peaceful times. Alpacas are often confused with llamas. However, they are noticeably smaller, even though the two can crossbreed. Alpacas themselves come in two breeds, the Suri and the Huaykaya. OK, David Attenborough, lesson over. What were they like? We arrived on Saturday morning after a ride up the A14 with rain beating down. We hoped the wet look was in for alpacas. They could, this could get messy. Hilly Ridge Alpacas is located in the depths of Suffolk. I'd call it proper Suffolk. You end up down some single track roads in the depths of hills. Yes, surprised me too. And lots and lots of trees. For a fen boy, the hills were foreign, but the greenery was welcome. It was idyllic. Then the weather broke and we enjoyed sunshine, not least coming from the 15 sweet-looking alpacas waiting for us in their pen. Names ranged from Hurricane and Sterling to Gary. We were quite relieved to get Sam and Henry. And Henry was a dream to walk round the farm just near Wattersham, south of Stowmarket. I'd read before going that you don't approach an alpaca from behind. They get worried if they can't see you. And spitting is one way they show their displeasure. Not one of these wonderful little creatures had an ounce of ill will in their bodies, though, and we trekked through valley, over bridges and even a stream without incident. Each alpaca had on a head harness and we attached a small lead rein to that and off we went. Some of the other walkers had been before, but most were newbies, like us, and the alpacas just played follow my leader without any pulling, rearing. It was like walking the 15-year-old family Labrador. A good hour plus of walking took us back to the Suffolk farmyard where we started, ready for the Gymkhana. Yes, competition time. The idea is to choose an alpaca for an obstacle course of walking around posts, a pampas grass tree, which proved too much of a back-scratching temptation for Gary, and then a couple of horse-like jumps to finish off with. Suffice to say, Apollo lived up to his name and rocketed around the course for me. But sadly, my legs weren't quite as fast as his were, so we finished an accreditable third spot. The look of disdain on Apollo's face was palpable. He'll remember me if I ever go back. The best part for me was going into the large field with all the mums and their young, with feed trays. The alpacas bound up to you for the pellets and are happy to linger among you and not bother you at all. Anyone can walk an alpaca. Kids need to be over ten and younger children just need an adult with them. If walking is not for you, various other options are available, from becoming an alpaca keeper to simply adopting one. People even have them at their weddings, and through lockdown the farm offered the chance to make Zoom and Teams call a little more exciting by including an alpaca on a virtual call. That's what I call animal magic. 
With the Abbey site sitting at the heart of Mary St Edmunds, it is used for various events other than those associated with its original purpose, that of religion. Perhaps the earliest documented event is that of intrepid balloonist Captain Poole, who took off in front of a large crowd somewhere within the Abbey grounds on October the 15th, 1785, ascending over two high miles high, according to him. He landed some 26 miles away at Earl Soham and returned in triumph that evening. Another scheduled event in 1879 was a grand gala, cancelled, when the River Lark burst its banks, flooding the intended areas to be used. Arguably one of the most famous events held here happened in 1907, when the Abbey Gardens became a wonderful backdrop for a splendid historical pageant of Bury. Organised by Napoleon Parker, a pageant master supremo, it was very successful with the great and the good of the town, much involved, with twelve different scenes from Berry's past in seven episodes. Rehearsals enabled those less well-off to see the pageant with cut-price tickets. Notable local artist Rose Mead was the set designer, and local printer's pauses issued a commemorative set of postcards depicting the scenes. The pageant cost £7,000, and amazingly a profit of £1,000 enabled a TB sanatorium to be built. A subsequent pageant was held in 1959, and a pageant play, Edmund of Anglia, in 1970, and though well organised and received some, somehow did not have the same appeal, the latter somewhat controversial in content. In recent years, musical attractions such as Abbey Fest with various musical acts have been popular, as well as theatrical performances, Shakespeare a great crowd puller. In 2014, with help to celebrate the 800-year anniversary of Magna Carta, when 25 barons met at Edmund's Shrine and the Lincoln Magna Carta, one of only four survivors, was exhibited free of charge in the Cathedral Treasury. This coincided with a wonderful historical Saint et Lumière that started in the town centre, culminating in the Abbey Gardens. All in all, great community involvement, what with the well-used children's play area upgraded in recent years and the magnificent floral beds contributing to berry and bloom winning so many accolades over the years on behalf of the town, the Abbey Gardens are a fitting tribute to the town's heritage. Hopefully a communal picnic in the park will proceed later this year to help celebrate the delayed Abbey Millennium. A Bury St Edmund's father has surprised his ten-year-old daughter by secretly publishing a book of ten of her poems. Daniel Stevens took to Amazon to self-publish Bethany's poems in a book called Beth's Brain, which reached the number one spot on the bestseller list for four days. The latest figures show the young author has sold 680 books to people in places as far-flung as America, Italy, Spain and Turkey. Bethany said, I felt like passing out because Dad never told me. I've always wanted to be a writer since I was in year one at school. The money raised will go towards a charity of Beth's choice and she's even been asked to read to care home residents in the town. Beth is currently writing a novel. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, Please use the phone number you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, Anglia, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Katrina, Roger, Sue and Neil, it's goodbye. goodbye. We had to leave that behind. So that was four vehicles we still turned drivers. So we then crossed the channel, got into Cannes about midnight, Saturday morning, uh, drove uh, through France, Holland, the Netherlands, Belgium, into Germany. Uh, we got to Germany and the second vehicle we walked down, which is mine. Um, so we You have been listening to a podcast so brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury. New Talk Association. So
You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmondsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our very simple studios. I was driving. I mean, we took it in turns and, and I was just so thrilled.